Wow, those university college students make a difference, don't they? This morning, um, we're going to be focusing on the chapter that you probably know quite well, 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter about love. And my reflection on it this morning is called How to Avoid Being a Nothing. And love is a big deal in our culture. We pursue love. People are busy looking for love. They're looking for the love of their life. Sometimes they talk about looking for love in all the wrong places. Strikes me that we can, our language says things about our culture's understanding of love. We talk about being in love as if it's sort of a cloud that envelops us. We're just kind of walking along, minding our own business, and we are in love. And it happens to us. It's not our own volition. We, we just kind of are enveloped by it and we have no control over it. In North America, we're so good at this love business that we can even make love, which is really a strange phrase for something that often involves no love at all. We can have a lover. Have you ever thought about what that actually implies? A lover is having someone else beside the one that you're married to. It's also a strange way for us to understand love. So we tend to make several mistakes when we think about what love is. First of all, we define it solely as a feeling, a good feeling. And so if it makes me feel good, it's still love. If I don't feel good anymore, it must not be love anymore. As if love is something that makes us feel wonderful all the time. Tied to that is this idea that love is a feeling that satisfies me. I am at the center of what love is. I can decide if I'm in love because it's happened to me, or if I don't have that feeling anymore, then I must have fallen out of love. And what can I do? I'll just fall in love with someone else again. If I don't feel good anymore, the love must be gone. And that's really a selfish, me-centered kind of definition of love. A closely related mistake is that we tend to idealize love. We think about the perfect conditions uh, for love, and that's how it would happen. We can play out all kinds of love and scenarios in our mind's eye, and we think that if the conditions were just right, we too could make some kind of great love for others. We we say things like, well, if I if I was able, I'd go and live like Mother Teresa too. Or or we get caught up in other things, like we see a really cute cop uh, puppy or or a baby, and we say, Oh, wouldn't it be nice? And then next thing you know, we we have a puppy too, it's so cute, and then come food bills and whining and messes on the carpet and never-ending laundry, and we think, whose bright idea was this? Anyway, we wrongly idealize love and then get discouraged when it turns out differently. So to contrast that, we're going to look at God's view of love. God does not define love as a feeling, 
nor does he idealize the conditions for love. If that were so, he would have given up on the world a long, long time ago. In some ways, it's an experiment gone wrong. And instead of just scraping it off the Petri dish into the trash, God decided that in love, he would hang on to this broken creation. His love is what sustains us, even though the sin virus has invaded the world and all of us. And everything in creation is affected by the sin virus, is tainted. Nothing is perfect. And that's not a surprise to God. God knows that truth perfectly, and yet he decides to love. Imperfection does not stop God's love. Ideal conditions are not going to happen this side of heaven, and yet love is commanded. In fact, God doesn't let us idealize love. God has come in his son Jesus, and he has formed a body of believers all over the world through generations of time, his family, the church, and we are commanded to love one another. Now, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth where there was a lot of infighting. People were arguing about who was better, who was the better leader, which one you associated with. They were ranking themselves. There were gender issues. And they were saying things like, well, if only everyone would do it our way, then it would all be right. Spiritual one-upmanship was the game that they were playing. If for them, it centered on the spiritual gifts on the things that you could do for God or the, that God had given you is what, is what Paul emphasizes. And then they were ranking these gifts, and so some people came out way on top and some people came out way on the bottom. And so Paul goes after their ranking. He goes through some of the spiritual gifts and contrasts them with love. Here are some of the things the Corinthians were boasting about. If I speak in human or angelic tongues, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, and then look at that last phrase, that I may boast. It's a stunning portfolio of gifts and abilities. Any one of these should get you instant membership into the God elite power squad, shouldn't it? You'd be right in there. And it must mean that God is smiling down on you, that he's looked over all the people on the earth and said, oh, that one, that one I'm going to give. Because, you know, she's so wonderful and she just stands up way over others. I'm going to give her not just one, two, maybe even four gifts because she is so special. It must mean that God thinks you're extra special if you can do these amazing things for God. But Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. It's not what you can do but it's how and why you do it. It's the motivation that tests the action. It's the heart behind it that determines the quality of the action. It's the character that counts, because if I do any of these amazing things but do not have love, 
I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I am nothing. I gain nothing. Without love, it counts for nothing. Without love. Love is the way to avoid being a nothing. Love is the only way to make sure that what you do counts for the kingdom. The pressures to status for the Corinthians, spiritual gifts, aren't necessarily our temptations, or maybe they are in your own church tradition, this spiritual ranking based on the gifts. What are our temptations as churches and Christians in 2014? If I think about that clue that Paul gives that you're doing all these things that I may boast, I wonder if you can hold up the mirror to yourself, to your fellowship, to whatever church that you associate with, or, and, and say, what is it that we boast about? What is it that we are proud of in our tradition, in my congregation, in this church that I'm going to now? What, what is it that we boast about? Or what is it that we look at other bodies, churches, congregations, and say, and envy? I say, oh, I wish we had that. I wish we had those programs. I wish we had that pastor. I wish we had that. So that what? We can boast? We value success in North America. In fact, we don't even realize that it might be a temptation to value success because it's so much a part of our culture that we think, of course, a church should be successful. We value getting things done, programs that accomplish things, leaders that get us somewhere. We value excellence in terms of presentation and qualities of programs, of of music, of buildings, But what if there is no love? If we have the greatest success, everything sparkles with excellence. We are getting amazing things accomplished, all of those things counted by numbers, of course, numbers of people, numbers of programs, numbers of staff, numbers of money that comes in. But without love, they are nothing. They are just noise. They are just fluff. They are just busyness. In fact, they may be more about ourselves than about God or even about loving our neighbor. We can so delude ourselves that what makes us feel good about and pleases us is what must be pleasing God. And often we even start with the right intentions. It is about love for God and others, But over time, things become skewed and twisted, and we may be the last to know. You know, sometimes we are disillusioned with the church. Maybe the church in general, maybe one congregation or denomination. We think the pastures are greener elsewhere, but there is no perfect church this side of heaven. There is There are no perfect programs, no perfect boards, no perfect pastors, and guess what? No perfect congregations. Not even one perfect human member of a church. And what's more, God is not surprised at this. 
That's the whole point of the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why? Because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul says the test is love, and then he defines love for us. First of all, he says love is patient. The word really is long-suffering. It means love has a long, long fuse. It puts up with a lot before there might be an explosion or an end. Love is kind. It doesn't mean that love can't be firm or won't set boundaries. Jesus, as our example, was good at both. He was good at kindness and love and reaching out and embracing those who needed it, but also setting boundaries, I think, also out of love or kindness for those who needed to change their ways, who needed to stop their bad behavior. It always protects. It doesn't have to hang out the dirty laundry just for spite to bring other people down. It always trusts. That means love doesn't jump to the worst possible conclusion or automatically mistrust someone else's motives. It always hopes. It knows that the recent bad event is not necessarily the end of the story. God's story and that person's story isn't finished yet. And it always perseveres. In the church, for example, love keeps on going. The church keeps on going because it knows that God is in control and has a plan in mind. And then Paul gives us a list of things that love is not. And these particularly have to do with the treatment of others, how we see ourselves in comparison to others. Let's read this together. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. We need to keep pretty clear what love is. And it's been said that everywhere where the word love shows up in 1 Corinthians 14, you could substitute the word Jesus. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, does not dishonor others, is not self-seeking, is not easily angered, and keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Our example is Jesus. He is our model. His interactions with others provide us a manual of living for others, of laying down our own lives. Years ago, decades ago actually, I was in a young adult's Bible study. And we were studying the book of Ephesians. And there were a number of us 
feminist young women in that group. And if you know Ephesians 5, you might know where this is going. Ephesians, oh yes, there's laughter. <laughs> so we were coming up to Ephesians 5, submitting, you know, that part. And we were prepared. We were prepared for this discussion to talk about wives submitting. And so when that came up, we started, you know, on this a bit of a rant about wives, why do they have to submit and and how men interpret this and make this for women and what people expect and so on and so on and so on. And there was one of our guy friends in the Bible study who listened to this for a few minutes. And then with a bit of an edge in his voice, he said, look, I'm tired of women complaining about this passage all the time. We're going, uh-oh. As if the greatest sacrifice is required of them. Look at the husbands. Look at what I'm asked to do. I am asked to lay down my life for her. Hello, just as Jesus laid down his life for the church. That's my example, as Christ laid down his life for the church. And we all know where that ended up. You think that's easy? More love, more submission, more giving is required about from us. So don't complain about your bit. Well, two things happened. One, it was pretty effective at stopping our rant that day. He had an excellent point, after all. And I kind of decided that maybe this young man was worth getting to know a little better. (laughs) 31 years later into our marriage. It's been a great ride of mutual submission. Jesus is our example. And God's power of love goes with us, goes before us, comes within us to lead us. We have the power of God's spirit to help us live out his calling on our lives. And so, friends, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, and love never fails. Why don't you stand, and we're going to say that litany together again. Dear friends, for love comes from God. Whoever does not love, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God.